Far too frequently, we hear news stories about the persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're thankful for our safety while we're both saddened and horrified by such news. Yet we must remember that Christianity began in unjust persecution. Let's listen now as Dr. James Boyce challenges us with the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and encourages us to fight the good fight in our own trials. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Everyone wants justice and fairness. However, we're often confronted with discrimination and all sorts of injustice. Some people are falsely accused because of fear or plain, wicked hatred. We do what we can to treat people justly, but we soon learn life isn't fair. This week, we see a grim example of injustice in Acts chapter 7, the account of the first Christian martyr, Stephen a follower of Christ who was falsely accused and put to death unjustly. Let's listen now as Dr. Boyce teaches about Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Turn with me to the seventh chapter of Acts, this great chapter from the early portion of the book of Acts that contains the sermon or oration of Stephen before the Sanhedrin. It's the longest chapter, certainly the longest sermon in the book, and it's a great one. When I was thinking about teaching it tonight, I was wondering if it could be considered in parts. It would be nice to be able to break it up, and yet it didn't seem quite proper to do that. It's a whole. It's a survey of the history of Israel, making certain points that are particular to the case. And so it's appropriate to treat it all together, and that's what I'd like to do. Now, Stephen, as you know, is the first martyr, first Christian martyr. Martyr is not merely a Christian who dies, of course, but one who dies for the sake of his witness, which is what the word martyr means. It comes from the Greek word martus, which means to witness or to bear a testimony. So Stephen bore a testimony to his Lord, and it's because of his testimony that he was put to death. We saw when we were looking at the sixth chapter of Acts, in which he's introduced for the first time, that he is presented both there and in this chapter as a model disciple of the Lord Jesus, which is to say he's like him in all important respects. He was like Jesus Christ in his character. We saw that because involved in the very essence of what it means to be a deacon is this idea of service, Jesus Christ was the great servant. He was the pattern for all our service. Jesus, if we may put it in these terms, was the first deacon. He said, you've seen how I served you. That's the way you ought to serve one another. And so in this first order of service in the church after the apostles was created, it was his order of the diaconate. Stephen excelled in this. And so the character of Jesus Christ was seen in him. That's one reason why he was chosen. And then, secondly, not only was he like Jesus Christ in his character, he was also like the Lord Jesus Christ, his master in his ministry. I showed you that there is an interesting comparison at that point between what is said of Stephen in chapter 6, verse 8, a man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people, and what is said of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 24, verse 19. There it's said of Jesus, 
He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. So that's very likely a deliberate reference, especially since Luke is the author of both books. So there we have a clear teaching that he was like Jesus Christ, not only in his character, but also in his ministry. And then thirdly, and most significantly from the point of view of the chapter we're going to study, he was like the Lord Jesus in his death. His trial was very similar to that of Christ. The accusations were virtually identical, except from the point of Christ having claimed to be God, but all of the other particulars were the same. And when he finally was led out to be executed, the comments that came from his lips were a direct imitation of the standard that had been set for him by the Lord. He said, forgive them, don't hold it to their charge, they don't know what they're doing. And he said, Lord Jesus Christ, receive my spirit. The Lord had said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So in all these respects, this is the way in which we're to look at Stephen. If you want to know what it is to be a good Christian, you want to know what it is to live in a way that honors God and is pleasing to him, here's a model, as Stephen shows us what that really means, being faithful even unto death. Now, we already saw that part about him. This is the chapter in which he gives his defense before the Sanhedrin. Before we look at it in its particulars, let's look at it in general, just thinking about some of the characteristics of this defense. In the first place, it's not actually a defense. Stephen, as we read this, is not dealing immediately, at least not point by point, with the accusations that had been made against him. He doesn't even answer them. Peter, earlier when he was called before the Sanhedrin, did answer them directly and to the point. Stephen doesn't do that. I'm going to show you that he actually does it by inference as he goes along, but he doesn't seem to be doing that. Instead, he's giving a history of the people of Israel, something which Jewish people are always anxious to hear, and the Sanhedrin, at least at the beginning, was certainly willing to hear. But in his hands, this rehearsal of the history of his people turns not so much into a defense of himself, but an accusation of the Sanhedrin. So in a very skillful way, as he rehearses the people, he turns the whole situation around. You see, by the time he gets through with his speech, it's not Stephen that's on trial, but the Sanhedrin. And they show themselves to be guilty by moving against Stephen to kill him in exactly the same way they earlier had moved against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we notice. And then secondly, in general, we notice that his speech is not at all like the speech of Peter. Peter, when he stood up on Pentecost, or later when he had an opportunity to preach before the Sanhedrin, had a simple way of proceeding. He would quote a verse of Scripture, and then he'd explain what it meant. And then he'd quote another verse of Scripture, and then he'd explain what that meant, and so on. And he did it with such balance that when you add up all the verses, it's almost half and half. Half Scripture and half explanation and application. Stephen doesn't seem to do that at all. Oh, this is very biblical. In a sense, it's entirely biblical. It's an Old Testament story, but he's not really quoting verses as he goes along, and he's certainly not explaining the verses as he goes along. He's just telling the story. And it's only toward the end that he begins to bring in some texts, quoting, first of all, from Amos 5, verses 25 and 27, and then from the 66th chapter of Isaiah. Something else is noticeable about that when you contrast it with Peter's sermons. You remember that what Peter was concerned to do is preach Jesus throughout and in his resurrection, crucified but raised from the dead. You don't find that 
in Stephen's speech. You don't find Jesus mentioned at all until you get to the very end, and even then he's not mentioned by name. He's only called that righteous one, and Stephen doesn't even mention the resurrection, that thing that had been so prominent early on. I said he doesn't set out to answer the accusations that are made against him, and yet, as I said, when you look at it closely, by inference, he does do that along the way. This sermon has a number of parts. It's easy to identify. There are a number of verses that deal with Abraham, and verses that deal with Joseph, then a large major section that deals with Moses, and then a section that contrasts the wilderness tabernacle with the temple in Jerusalem, and finally a summation in which he makes his accusation. Now, the section that deals with Moses really answers the first of the charges that were made against him. They had accused him of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So when he talks about Moses, although he's not countering it directly, what he really is doing is answering that charge. And when he gets to the discussion of the tabernacle and the temple, he's really answering the charge of blasphemy against God, which had to do with the destruction of the temple. And he does that in a very brilliant way. One more thing in an introductory fashion. You have to remember here that Stephen was among those Greek-speaking Christians that were chosen to be the deacons. He was a Hellenist. He has a Greek name. He represented that faction in the church. And that is perhaps why things are treated this way. What Stephen seems to have perceived with a brilliance that surpasses that of the apostles and anticipates the keen insight that was later given to the apostle Paul is that the old order of things that the Jews, including the apostles, so highly cherished was passing away. This becomes particularly clear when he talks about the temple. Oh, it was cherished by the Jews. They loved that temple, but it was destined to pass away, and he saw that. And so in that sense, you see, this speech in chapter 7 by the Hellenistic Christian, Jewish Christian, Stephen, is a transition speech that paves the way for the opening of the door to the Gentiles as the gospel moves beyond Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and eventually to the whole Roman world. It is no accident in that respect that in the eighth chapter we find immediately after this that the church is scattered and the gospel begins to spread into Samaria. So those are the introductory remarks. Now let's look at it. And because we can't look at every single verse, let's look at what it is Stephen emphasizes. Take this first section, this section that deals with Abraham, verses 1 through 8. There are all sorts of things that Stephen could have said about Abraham. There's a long, long section of the book of Genesis that gives Abraham's story, and it was known to every Jew. He could certainly have referred to anything in that, and he does refer in passing to a great deal. What is it that he emphasizes? One way of answering that question is to contrast what he says here, the details of what he says here, with what we know from Genesis. That is, what does he bring in that we don't know in any other way? One thing we know we find right at the beginning when he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, that's very explicit, but that is something quite different than the impression that we would get merely by reading the early chapters of Genesis. What we seem to be told in Genesis is that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Haran. 
What Stephen is saying here is that God appeared to Abraham even before he got to Haran, that is, when he was in Mesopotamia. Now you say, well, what in the world does that matter? It just doesn't seem to be important. It does in the context of this address, because what we're going to find, not only here, but elsewhere, particularly in the case of Moses, is an emphasis upon the fact that God is the God not of one limited geographical locality, one place, but he is the God of all the world. And he reveals himself in other places besides Palestine. You see, it's very important in that context for Stephen to have begun by saying that God revealed his glory to Abraham, first of all, when Abraham was in Mesopotamia. The fact that he mentions the God of glory appearing to Abraham is also new. You see, in Genesis, we're told that God spoke to Abraham and said certain things. Here Stephen adds this additional information. God appeared to him. It's not just as if Stephen was there and God, perhaps from Mount Zion, many hundreds and hundreds of miles away, was shouting to him, Stephen, come over here. I want you to come to Palestine. It wasn't that at all. God appeared to him right there in Mesopotamia in all his glory. And that revelation of the God, it was the God of all races, of the Gentiles as well as the Jews, as the God Abraham began to follow. So that's significant. When he begins to talk about his time in Canaan, he emphasizes, it seems to me, that Abraham remained a pilgrim even there. Even though this was the land that God was giving them, and the land he eventually did give them, and in which the temple was built, the people did settle. And he mentions that later on. For Abraham, at least, the father of the nation, this was just a land through which he was passing. He didn't even own any of the ground in the land, says Stephen. He was a pilgrim even in the Holy Land. That's meant as a rebuke to these settled religious leaders. You see, they were in the land that God had given, and all of that was important. It was a blessing to be had, but they just were at home in the land. They were just enjoying that for themselves, and they had forgotten that spiritual dimension that characterized Abraham. Abraham, who, as we're told in Hebrews, didn't look for an abiding earthly city, but for a heavenly city that would last forever. He was a true pilgrim, a pilgrim at heart, and that's what these rulers had ceased to be. They had taken as so... Many religious people do the things of the world and the blessings of the world. And they had said, oh, these are from God. And of course they are. All things are from God. But they allowed this to eclipse their expectation of God himself. So even at the beginning, in what really is introductory section to what he's going to say, he's beginning to deal with the situation of the Sanhedrin. And then he talks about Joseph. You have that in verses 9 through 16. His chief point here is that Joseph was mistreated and mistreated by his brothers. I noted when we were studying Genesis some years ago and came to that great last section of the book that deals with Joseph, that although Joseph is a remarkable illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way he's mistreated and he went into a foreign land and he was the means of delivering his people and all of that, nowhere in the Bible is Joseph ever made a direct parallel, an illustration of that. It never says, as it does of Moses, for example, that Jesus is the second Moses, the new lawgiver, or something like that. You never find that in relationship to Joseph. But if ever there is a place where that is in the back of things, where it's suggested, even though it's not said openly, it is certainly here. Because 
The point Stephen is making is, and that he makes at the end very clearly, is that all down through their history, the Jewish people had persecuted and killed the prophets God sent to them. Just as Joseph's brothers had mistreated Joseph, he was the recipient of God's revelation through dreams, for example, but they rejected them, and they eventually rejected him and tried to have him killed. And, of course, that's what they did with Jesus Christ. That's the point he's making. When he begins to talk about Moses, it's much the same thing, only he does it at greater length because Moses was the one the Sanhedrin really focused on. Moses was the one through whom God had given the law, and they had built their whole lives around the law, keeping the law of Moses. So in this long, long section, this middle portion of the sermon, from verses 17 to verse 43, Stephen talks about Moses. And what does he say about him? Well, the first thing he has to say about Moses is that Moses also was rejected by his people. So many things he could have said, but what he really emphasizes here is that when Moses perceived that his heart really lay with his people, as it did, and he wanted to be identified with them rather than with the Egyptians, he took sides with one of his people against an Egyptian and killed him. He thought, in the ignorance of his own fleshly understanding that it might be something like a signal, a rallying cry for revolution. He thought, here, I, Moses, the leader, the one who, by the grace of God, has had all this wonderful education, not only a Christian education, biblical education from my mother, but I've had this education and all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. I'm uniquely qualified to lead the people. Now, here's an injustice. I take my stand with my people on the side of righteousness. I kill the Egyptian. Why? There's going to be an uprising, and I'll be able to lead them out. Perhaps, I think it's probably the case that Moses himself knew that the prophecies concerning a deliverer had come, that the time frame had been given. It was 400 years. The 400 years were up. He said, now's the time. I must be the one, and so on. He expected that to happen. But it wasn't God's way. God doesn't deliver by leading us to be murderers. And so the word got around, and his people rejected him, and he had to flee. He had to go away to Midian, where he spent the next 40 years of his life. But Stephen's point, you see, is that the people rejected Moses. Joseph's brothers had rejected Joseph. The people of Israel, now grown to be a great host, had rejected Moses. And later in the story, we find that they reject him again. When he's in Midian, God appears to him. And in bringing in this incident, Stephen makes the same point he made earlier in the case of Abraham. God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that is, in Gentile territory. Now, here's the same thing with Moses. Verse 29, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, that is, a Gentile area, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And then it says, notice the next verse, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush near Mount Sinai, and God said to him, verse 33, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. It wasn't Jerusalem, you see. It wasn't Judea, you see. This was a mountain in Midian, Gentile territory. And yet God was there, and because God was there, the ground was holy. Certainly by this point we're beginning to get Stephen's drift, and I suspect the Sanhedrin was beginning to get it as well. He was saying, this neat little hold you think you have on God, this little hold that makes God Jewish and not the God of the Gentiles as well as a corrupt thing, and it's corrupting you. 
And if you were faithful to your own tradition, if you just look back at the details to see what your own scriptures tell you, you'd know that that isn't true. God is the God of all people, and although you've been given special privileges, those privileges carry with them enormous responsibility. And you are to be the witnesses of this God to the entire world, which, of course, they were refusing to do. I wonder if we realize that. We have a hymn which goes, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. That's what this is teaching, that God can be found everywhere, and in every nation he has those who seek him and find his face. Well, the story of Moses goes on, and it tells us that the initial rejection that Moses had experienced when he tried to deliver them when he was 40 years old in Egypt was followed by a more substantial rejection during those years in the desert. This was much later. Moses was much wiser at this point, much more reluctant to lead. He didn't really want to be the leader of the people here, but God had called him anyway, and he was leading them. And... It's while he was up on the mountain receiving the very law of God, the law of God on which this Sanhedrin prided itself and which they had accused Stephen of breaking. Wow, Moses was up on the mountain receiving that law. The people were down in the valley breaking those very laws of God. God had brought them out of Egypt. He had revealed himself to be the true God. The first of the Ten Commandments said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet that's exactly what the people were doing. The very time the law was being given, they were down there making idols for themselves, idols like the gods of Egypt. They made a bull god, which turned out to be only a little calf because they didn't have enough gold and silver to make a big one, but they were trying. And so they were committing idolatry even when the law was being given. That's a marvelous story from Exodus 32, a story It's almost humorous at points as God points to what's going on down in the valley and says to Moses, look what your people are doing. And Moses, who doesn't want to identify himself with them then any more than God does, said, what do you mean, my people? Look what your people are doing. They have that little exchange. And although it's funny, there is a great moment there when Moses, really a great man, offers to be sent to hell if it might mean the salvation of the people. God says to Moses at one point, step aside, I'll blot them out, and I'll start all over again with you. You'll become a new Abraham. I'll make a new people through you. And although that might have been a temptation for a lesser man, it was no temptation for Moses. And he came back to God and said, no, don't do that. Instead of blotting them out and saving me, blot me out and save them. Let me die in their place. Now, he wasn't able to do that. There's only one who could. There is no other good enough to pay the price of sin except Jesus. But Moses didn't know that. He made the offer, and God laid it aside, and God did send Jesus in time. It's what this speech is all about, ultimately. But you see, all of that happened there as the people were rejecting this marvelous leader that God had sent. At this point, Stephen brings in the first of his direct quotations, or a few places where if you notice the notes in your Bible, there are references. He's referring to specific passages. But here for the first time, he gives a quotation at some length, and it's from the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets. He's quoting from the fifth chapter, verses 25 through 27, and he gives a pretty direct quotation, but there is one interesting variation. You look at the last line. If you're looking in the New International Version, you'll see that there's a little letter stuck into it, a G, which is a reference to the text, and the text is given at the bottom of the page. 
But it's interesting that it comes after the word exile and before the words beyond Babylon. There's a very good reason for that. If you look up the text in Amos, you'll find that Amos didn't say beyond Babylon, but he said beyond Damascus. And there's a good reason why he said beyond Damascus. That's because he was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he was prophesying their exile, and they were taken beyond Damascus by the Syrians. Now, Stephen, who quotes the text, alters it at this point, and with reason, because here he's not talking to the northern kingdom. He's talking to the leaders of Israel in the south, and it's their history he has in mind. And when they were carried away into captivity, it wasn't by the Syrians and exile in Syria, scattering of the people that happened in 721 B.C. It's the exile by the Babylonians that took place in 586 B.C. And so he substitutes the words beyond Damascus and puts in beyond Babylon, because that's, as we say, where the rubber really met the road for these members of the Sanhedrin. See the point he's making. He's saying this rebellious attitude that was seen in the lives of Joseph's brothers and in the people in Egypt and their rejections of Moses has been characteristic of you all through your history. Years after Moses, Amos was still writing about it. And you yourselves are the heirs of that history. You are those who have returned years and years later from those who were carried away into that Babylonian captivity. What is there that more characterizes you than a rejection of the very one through whom the law was given? You see, they had said to Stephen, you're blaspheming against the law of Moses. And what Stephen really says to them is you have been breaking the law of Moses by rejecting Moses and through him the truth of God all down through your history and through your lives. Now in verse 44, we have another section, and it's interesting. Up to this point, it's been talking about individuals, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. But now he doesn't talk about individuals. He starts with this matter of the tabernacle of testimony, which is where the Jews worshipped, where God met with them during the days of their wilderness wandering, which they had up to and including the years of David. It was only in the reign of Solomon that the temple was built. He starts dealing with this tabernacle, and he contrasts it with the temple that they had in their days, this great, big, magnificent temple that, first of all, was built by Solomon and then was rebuilt after the fall and the destruction by the Babylonians in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and then was built again in a marvelous way by King Herod and was the glory of Jerusalem at this particular time of its history. As you drew near to Jerusalem, this is what you saw, this great gilded temple. It had never been so glorious as it was in that day. And so Stephen begins to make this contrast, contrast between the tabernacle, which wasn't a glorious thing. It was a, a movable thing. You just broke it down. You took it with you, but God was there. And the temple that was so glorious from a human point of view, but he's implying, is he not, that that's the place from which God has taken his leave. The commentators speculate about this. They say, is Stephen really criticizing the building of the temple? Is he saying that the building of the temple was a mistake? The Christians, at least, and certainly the Jewish people, shouldn't be worshiping there. It seems to imply that because he says, quoting the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Seems to be saying that. And yet, as commentators point out, the Christians, even in this day, worshiped in the temple. 
and God had appeared in the temple, and Jesus Christ honored the worship of the temple. It's hard to think that, although this is where the address seems to be heading and the suggestion that's given, it's hard to think that Stephen is really saying that the building of the temple was a mistake and Christians should have nothing to do with it. Perhaps he was saying that the temple had been misused. Others suggest that, and certainly that was true. It was being misused. But I think what he is saying here, especially because of the way he says it and the place at which this speech is included in the book of Acts, is simply what has become perfectly obvious through the outflow of history. The day of the temple was passing. Oh, it had been built by Solomon, and God had given instructions for it, and all of that was good, but all of that was passing away. Because now, the Lord Jesus Christ had come, and he was the temple. And those who came to him would become temples themselves, as his spirit, the spirit of the living God, would come to dwell in them. If you want a real exposition of this, you have to read the book of Hebrews, in which this author, many people think it's Paul, some suggest it's the same kind of person as Stephen was, whoever it was, points out that all of this was merely a type, a foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and was fulfilled in him and is now fulfilled in the church. Well, you see, there were two accusations against Stephen. One, that he had blasphemed against the law of Moses, and he answered that by turning it back against his accusers. He said, you're the one that is breaking the law of Moses. And then this accusation that he had blasphemed against God by saying that Jesus Christ would destroy the temple, and it would seem as if he's acknowledging that that's true indeed. That is what Jesus Christ is in the process of doing because, you see, you've destroyed true religion by what you have made of it in this temple. And actually, the true God is the God who reveals himself in every place. He gets to that point, and now he begins to apply it in true prophetic fashion, directly, cuttingly, emphatically. He has three accusations against them. First of all, that they resist the Holy Spirit, as they always have. Secondly, that they reject the prophets and kill some, as they always have. And thirdly, that they themselves break the law of Moses, as they always have. And oh, at that point, oh, at that point, the anger against Stephen reached such a fervent peak that they wouldn't even hear him anymore. You know how it is. You hear something, you just can't stand to hear it anymore. You hate every word that's being said. That's what happened. The anger had been building all through the speech. The beginning, perhaps, they were listening courteously. After all, he was telling their history. But as he began to make his points, they began to see where he was going, and they were getting angrier and angrier. And finally, he makes the application saying, God is going to reveal himself elsewhere. He's not tied to this temple. And you are the ones, among others, who have been responsible before it by rejecting the Holy Spirit and killing his prophets, including Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and breaking his law. And at that point, they were just so angry, they just rushed, as it would seem, as a mob in one voice, and they carried him outside, and they stoned him. There was only one person in that whole mob that was really calm about it, and that was Stephen. We're told at the beginning of the address that when they turned to look at him, his face glowed like that of an angel. And here at the end, as he finished knowing what was going to happen, he looked up and by his own testimony, he said he saw the Lord Jesus Christ 
that righteous one that they had killed. I said he doesn't mention the resurrection, but you see it's implied because he sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And he called their attention to it. He said, look, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. People have wondered why Jesus Christ was standing in this particular vision. You know, in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, verse 12, where it's describing Christ and his work, it says after he completed his work, he sat down. It's making a contrast between the priests in the temple who always stood, as there were no chairs in the temple, the Jewish temple always stood, because the work was never finished. They had to make sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, because people sinned upon sin upon sin. And so the work was never done, but it says in Hebrews that when Jesus Christ made his sacrifice, the work was done. It was the perfect sacrifice. It didn't have to be repeated. And so when he finished the sacrifice, he sat down. And so that's what we refer to in the creed. Rightly, we say, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and so forth. That's correct. But now here is Jesus standing. And people say, now why is Jesus standing? There have been two suggestions, and I think both of them are valid. One is that Jesus stood up, as it were, to receive his martyr. Now, sometimes we hear stories like that. I have every reason to believe them. Christians dying in the faith, who as they die, lying in their beds, raise their arms and lean forward, as it were, and say, oh, look, I see Jesus, and then they fall back and they die. My own grandfather died that way. I think there may be something to that. Who's to say that when those people die, they don't actually see the Lord Jesus Christ coming for them, opening up his arms to receive them? Perhaps that's the explanation of Jesus standing when Stephen died. But there's also another suggestion, and I think, as I also believe the first, that this one is true as well. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. And If that's the explanation of what's going on here, then what we have is Jesus, as it were, standing as an advocate to plead the cause of Stephen the martyr before his father in heaven. In other words, what Stephen caught a glimpse of in that moment of his death was that second and greatest trial that was taking place in heaven. It was a trial on earth in which Stephen was condemned. There was that greater trial in heaven, the one that really matters, in which Stephen was exonerated. The Lord Jesus Christ taking his side and pleading his case and saying to the Father, he's one of mine, he's confessing me, he's dying in the faith, and he is one I'm going to take with me into heaven as my child, my brother, forevermore. I don't know about you, but I find that very encouraging. You know, as we go through life In a variety of situations, we're on trial. We're in trial with our friends. We're in trial at work. Above all, we're in trial spiritually, and we try to say things or do things. Often it's misunderstood. Quite often we're criticized unjustly, quite often justly as well, but sometimes unjustly. And, you know, we tend to get discouraged by that. We have to remember that the trials that we go through here are not the final trials of history. Oh, they're meaningful trials. We want to do as well as we can. That's why we have to be strong and bear a faithful testimony in those occasions. But the trials that really matter, and above all, the verdict that counts, is the verdict that's given in heaven. I don't know what the Lord Jesus Christ says when he 
looks down and sees us and pleads our cause before the Father, though I'm sure it varies in every case. He might say in one case, look at that, as he did to Satan. Look, there's a righteous woman, there's a righteous man doing the right thing. It's costly. It's going to hurt them. That person's going to lose the job eventually because of that stand, because they won't cheat, because they won't lie in the business. Look at that. There's the victory. That's great. He may be saying that. He may be looking down and seeing us when we don't do quite so well. But when we are trying, and he might say, now look, don't hold it against them. You know what he's like. You know what she's like. They're just made of dust. You're the one that made them. Can't expect too much. Anything that's good in them is what you've put there. It's my spirit at work. Their heart is right. You see, they have the new nature within them. They're trying to do the right thing, and that's what counts. It's not the words that come out. It's not not the slips that are made along the way. It's where their heart is. Nobody can see that. All those people around them, even the other Christians looking at them, can't see the heart. But that's what counts. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, look at that, look at that. Or they're the sins. When the sins take place, when we sin, and the devil says, ah, look at that, look at that, they sinned, they sinned. The Lord Jesus Christ says, yes, but they're mine. I died for them. My death covered that sin. And they now stand clothed in my righteousness, and one day they're going to be here in heaven, and they're going to be as perfect as I am. I find that encouraging. You find it encouraging. You should be encouraged, as I trust I am as well, to do what we sing in one of our hymns, and that is to fight the good fight of faith. To stand firm to the end, to bear a strong testimony, knowing, as Paul said as he looked back over his own life toward the end when he wrote to Timothy, knowing that there is now a crown of righteousness laid up for me, and not for me only, but for all who love his appearing. Stephen, the first martyr, is wearing that crown. And since that time, many others have put it on. May we do likewise to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, do bless this great sermon of this great man to our hearts, knowing from whence he got his greatness and from whom those words came. In Jesus' name. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Rev. Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at alliancenet.org. 
For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.